21, John chapter 21 this evening. And, uh, you know, I was thinking as we uh, sat there listening to the music that uh, you, when you think about the Lord's life and the body of, of work and information that we have in the Word of God concerning His life, uh, we really, in some ways, we have more information about His last 40 days than we do about His first 30 years. As we move past, if we want to call it moving past, the, uh, the Easter season, I believe it's befitting that we take a little time and, and look at some things we can learn from the resurrected Lord. You know, it's not just the scene by the grave that uh, in which the Lord met with His people. It's not just the scene in the upper room, but on a few occasions, the risen Lord met with people and spoke to them and encouraged them and dealt with them and taught them things about their life and what it would be like. And this evening, I want us to uh, begin a little short three-part series that the Lord led us on lessons from uh, the living Lord. In John chapter 21, the Lord deals with Peter and He teaches him three lessons that are going to change his life. When Peter enters John 21, he is a broken individual. But after meeting with the Lord, he is a blessed individual. He enters into this situation uh, broken over his sin. But as he leaves this situation, he has been encouraged, he has been uplifted, he has been strengthened for the journey that would be ahead of him. It's interesting that these three lessons correlate very closely to his denial of the Lord. If Pentecost was the greatest day in Peter's life, or the day on which he accomplished the most, then certainly uh, the night that our Lord was taken from the garden and that he sat around the fires and warmed himself would have been on the other end of that spectrum, a day upon which Peter would look back with remorse and regret, a day of darkness, not a day of light. And it's a blessing to know that before the Lord left this world, before He ascended up into heaven, He wanted to encourage Peter and give him the strength to go on. Now, that encourages me because I mess up sometimes. Anybody like me? I mess up sometimes. It's good to know that before the Lord uh, lets anything else happen, He wants to take a few moments to restore me and to help me and to bring me back to the place that I need to be. If if somebody did me like I did the Lord, I probably wouldn't have much to do with them. But I'm not the Lord, and you and I both ought to be thankful that I'm not. <laughs> because He is gracious, He is long-suffering, and He does not leave us in despair. But He encourages us and helps us. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. I've got a few things I want to say as we preach this throughout this message, and I'll trust the Holy Spirit to put them right where they need to be. The Word of God says in verse 1, After these things Jesus showed Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed He Himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. 
But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, an hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. None of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Pray that you'd bless it and use it in our hearts tonight. Lord, we need it. We need you. We need your presence. We need your help tonight. We need your comfort and encouragement. Just pray, Father, that you glorify your son. We know if he's glorified, if he's lifted up, Lord, we know that we'll be helped by it. We do ask all these things now in Christ's name. Amen. This is the first of three interactions that the Lord is going to have with Peter on this night by this seashore. He begins, and I've sort of titled them this way. I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. I'll tell you my titles. Amen. You'll have an idea kind of the direction we're going. But in this particular passage, the Lord teaches Peter a lesson about leaving what leaving means and what leaving will do. In the next few verses, when he begins to question Simon Peter, he teaches him an important lesson about loving, what love is and what love really looks like. And then as John closes his narrative, he gives us an account of the Lord dealing with Peter about living, what living means, what it's worth, and how it can glorify the Lord. We might remember him this way, that he teaches him a lesson about fishing, a lesson about feeding, and a lesson about following that are going to change Peter's life. Each of these three hearken back to a time in which Peter sat around a fire and denied the Lord Jesus. And there are gentle reminders, you know, that's how the Lord is. Uh, There's times the Lord has to deal rough with us, but if He can be gentle, He is. And there's some gentle reminders. You know, the last time that Peter had sat around a fire of coals, he was denying the Lord. But this time he's dining with the Lord. You know, sometimes the Lord will bring things into our mind and into our memory about mistakes that we've made. You know what He'll do? He'll show us how far He's brought us. I'm sure that when Peter left that first fire, he never thought he'd ever fellowship with the Lord again. Surely he must have thought when he turned his head and when his eyes began to gaze upon the eyes of God, surely he must have thought to himself, Jesus is done with me. But here he is on this night dining with the Lord Jesus, restored and accepted back into His presence. That's the kind of Lord we have. When we've messed up, when we've failed, He doesn't throw us away. 
But He helps us. He encourages us. He lifts us from our despair and from our difficulties. And so there are several reminders. And He gives a reminder in in the passages following. He asks Peter a question that couldn't help but make Peter remember about a, a confession and a claim that he had made. And we'll get those in time. But I want us to consider three basic thoughts this evening as we look at this passage. And I want to preach to you on this idea of leaving. How easy it is to leave when things get difficult. How easy it is to turn and to walk away, especially when you've got a skill or a trade like Peter did of fishing, to turn around and to walk away from what God had called him to do. Let me tell you something. I'm glad when I turn around and try to walk away from him, he don't try to walk away from me. If he let me walk away, I would have probably been gone a long time ago. And I would have probably been in despair and in misery. But those times when my flesh began to swell and when my uh, faith began to diminish, the Lord Jesus was faithful even when I wasn't faithful. And he does this with Peter on this occasion. A little time has passed. The Lord has told them to go and to meet him in Galilee. And they have done just that. They've gone to Galilee. Peter was an active man. I do not know uh, necessarily if it was the cabin fever that got to him, if it was the despair that got to him. If I had to guess, it was probably everything. That's how it is most of the time. Usually it's not one thing, it's a bunch of things. But Peter gets to a place where he can no longer sit and wait on God any longer. And so he says, I go a-fishing. Now, that means one thing to me, and it means another thing to you, and it means something entirely different to Peter. We understand that Peter is not doing this in a recreational way. You say, how do you know that? Well, because you don't fish with nets in a recreational way. There's nothing peaceful. I mean, we, you know, most of us, we enjoy, and it's that time of year now, and it's only getting to be closer and better uh, time of year for it, where you might like to sit on the bank and put a line in the water and watch the bobber. Go up and down as you get a bite. But this is not the type of fishing that they were doing. This was not recreational fishing. This was commercial fishing. I, I can't look inside Peter's heart and understand everything that he meant and intended. But I'll tell you this. I think when Peter said, I go a-fishing, I think he was saying, I go a-fishing and I ain't a-coming back. I'm going back to the life that Christ had called me out of. Isn't it interesting that the last time the Lord Jesus spoke and told them to cast their nets on a different side, Peter was being called into the ministry. And now he's trying to call himself out of the ministry. And the Lord Jesus meets him at that place and shows him a few things, some consequences to what he did. And I want you to think about the dangerous results of leaving. Now, when I talk about leaving, I'm not talking about losing your salvation because there is no such thing. When somebody talks to you about losing their salvation, they, you might, they might as well be talking to you about leprechauns. Amen? Because both of those things are, have about the same realism to them. A person cannot lose their salvation. Peter uh, is not losing his salvation, but what he is doing is walking away from serving God. And I'll tell you this, though, you can never lose your salvation. I've known lots of people that walked away from serving God. Lots of people, and it means different things, different people. I, I Listen, I know preachers right now that are, that are driving trucks and that are, you know, mowing lawns and things like that, and they've walked away, and but for the grace of God go I. I'm not prideful. But for the grace of God go I. But it doesn't even have to be all like that. I mean, I've known preachers that have turned around and said, I go a-fishing. But I've known Christians, too, 
church members that have said, you know what, it's just too tough, it's too difficult, I'm tired of it, I don't want this target on my back anymore, I'm tired of all the rules, I go a-fishing. I've met many like that. I could call names tonight, and you could too, of people that once sat in these pews. Where are they? They went fishing. They're not in the things of God anymore. They're not in the church house anymore. They're not in the prayer closet anymore. What are the results of something like that? I'd like you to notice three things very quickly. Look at verse number 3. Peter said, I go fishing, and it says they. Now, who are they? Well, there are seven individuals involved in this narrative, if we don't consider the Lord Jesus. Simon Peter and Thomas the doubter, Nathaniel. And the sons of Zebedee, James and John. The Bible just says two other of his disciples. We do not know who those others were. But I'd say if Peter and Nathaniel were there, it might be a good bet that Philip and Andrew were probably there too. I don't know that. Scripture is silent on it. But suffice it to say that this party was made up of people that had been followers of Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice the effect, number one. I want you to notice Peter's impressionable companions. Because you know what they said? They said, we also go with thee. You know, we'd like to think that, that we don't affect anybody. I've heard people say this a hundred times. Well, it's my life. You ever heard somebody say that? Well, it's my life. It ain't nobody's business but mine. Well, you may think that, but the reality is there are people you'll drag down with you. No man's an island unto himself. Peter wasn't either. Peter is the loud mouth in the group. I like Peter. <laughs> He's the loud mouth in the group. He is the prominent individual and figure. We've said it time and again from this pulpit that if you were to somehow in some strange way remove the person of the Lord Jesus out of the Gospels, what you'd have basically is a story about, uh, about 11 guys and Peter. Because he is at the forefront of all of the stories, it seems. He is a big character. He is a big figure, a big individual, both physically and personality-wise. And when he walked away, there were some that walked away with him. Now, you may think that you're an island. You may think it don't affect anybody, but, but the truth is it does. There are people watching you and me. There are people that are watching us because they're looking for a mistake, but there's people watching us because they're looking for an example too. You might be surprised to find out how much influence you do have. I've got a little boy, and I, one of the things that, that thrills my heart is the way he wants to be like his daddy. It scares me, too, but, but it thrills me, too, the way he wants to be, you know, like, like his daddy. And any, any little thing that we do, you know, I mean, he wants to be like daddy, and little boys are that way. And what a stark reminder it is that there are smaller footsteps walking in mine. So I better be mindful where I'm stepping. You may not have children, you may have grandchildren, you may not have children or grandchildren, but you have people in your life. Everybody in this room, there's not a person in this room that doesn't have someone that is looking at them and deciding something about Christ while looking at them. And you may find that if you turn around and walk away, there'll be a few walk away with you. Now you say, well, that's okay, preacher, I'm fine with that. Well, you might not be fine with that on the day that you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice his impressionable companions. I want you to notice his empty catch. <laughs> they go out and they go fishing. Now, uh, you know, i, I got to tell you this. If all we understand and know and believe about Peter's ability as a fisherman is what the Bible says, he wasn't much of one. But I don't believe that is the case. I believe that there are a few narratives and instances in which Peter's fishing is at the forefront uh, and God is teaching us some things. But this was a man that had made his living at a fisherman's net. 
And there was no reason to believe he should have went out upon the Sea of Tiberias and spent a night and come home with nothing. Except that the God of all creation was able to whisper in the ears of those fish and say, you can go anywhere in this sea, but you better not go near that man's net. You know, God does that sometimes. Sometimes we get out of the will of God, and it's not, I mean, we don't just have our share of trouble. It's like we have everybody's share of trouble. And you know what God's doing? He's bringing us to a breaking point. And we don't like to talk about that because that's not, that, that's not palatable. That's not, it's not pleasing, the idea of being broken. But let me tell you something. If you've ever had a, a, a break, a, a bone that, that uh, re-healed the wrong way, you know the only remedy for it is a fresh, clean break. It's got to be brought to that breaking point. Why? Because it's crooked and it has to be set straight. And it's set in its ways and the bone has began to form and it has firmness and it has stability to it, but it's not the right kind of stability. And so the doctor will take and with surgical precision, not breaking anything that doesn't need to be broken, he'll take and break it right where it needs to be so that he can set it right. You know the great physician's that way too. With surgical precision. Not breaking anything that doesn't have to be broken. He's able to break us so that He can remake us. They come back empty. There's no reason for that, except that God wasn't allowing them to catch anything. And you know, that's a lot of times what happens when we turn around and leave. We just turn miserable. Just miserable. Just unhappy. Nothing's working right. Nothing's going right. Our bank account can be full. Our closet can be full. Our pantry can be full. But we feel an emptiness inside. I don't know why, as I already said, that they went out fishing, but I understand that probably between 11 guys, they could have scrounged up enough money to buy food to keep them going. I don't think that Peter was going out and going fishing because they were going to starve to death if they did not do that. You know, sometimes in, in our life, we may have everything we need, but still there's an emptiness. That's what Peter was trying to fill. You see, he had never gotten things right. He had never gotten things right until this night. He had never come. He was contrite. He was broken. He was sorrowful. He had gone to the tomb, but he hadn't gone to Jesus yet. And until he came to him, and I don't just mean come to him collectively in part of a group, but I mean come to him personally. You know, that's part of the problem. We think we can come to church and it somehow washes us just to be in the church house. I got news for you, friend. You may come to church, but unless you come to Jesus, nothing's going to get done. He had to have a, an interaction, an altercation with the Lord Jesus. We notice his impressionable companions and his empty catch. But notice what it says in verse 4. Now, this involves all of them, not just Peter, but it involves all of them. You know why? Because they all walked out. It, these aren't just rules for Peter. These are rules for your life and my life. If we walk out on God, we'll experience this too. It says, but when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. But what? But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Won't you notice their impeded and impaired communion? Man, imagine that. Three and a half years. They'd slept under the same roofs. They'd eaten at the same table. And Jesus stands on the shore. And they don't even know that He's there. They can't even sense His presence anymore. Boy, it's sad to say, but you know you can get to that place. You know you can get to that place. You can lose the joy of your salvation. You can get to the place where you just don't feel nothing anymore. You say, what, what happens when you get to that place where well, God has to deal with you through external measures then? 
You see, when you start ignoring the Holy Ghost, God will still deal with you because you're still His child. But He may not be able to deal with you through the Holy Ghost. He may have to deal with you through external circumstances. That's what He did here. The Lord is present, but they don't know it. Their communion had been broken, had been severed. And now, you know, Christ was still God. You understand that? They still could have prayed to Him. They still could have communed with Him. Christ had already, you know what it says in chapter number 20, it says that Christ had already breathed on them and they had received the Holy Ghost. You can go back and look. Breathed on them. They had already received the Holy Ghost. But in their backslidden condition, it didn't matter. The Lord was present. Christ's Spirit was indwelling them. But they didn't know it was Him. You know, that's sort of how it gets sometimes. I've, I've had people, and I, I've heard this, and I'm sure you've heard this before. I've heard it uh, about, I mean, I've heard about our church, but I've heard about a lot of churches. Uh, you know, you just hear Christians say things like this. They'll say, well, you know, something changed. Something changed. Used to be so good. God used to move, and God used to speak, and then, and then something changed. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's a lot of churches where God isn't nowhere near it, and I'm aware of that. And there's a lot of churches where God used to be that He's not anymore. I'm not dismissing that that is a reality, but I, I, I know this, that it's just human nature to always blame everybody else and to say, well, everybody else has changed. You know, it might be that He's still showing up. It might be that you're not getting in on it. it might be that He's still showing up, but you're not getting in on it. He was right there on the shore. But they couldn't sense His presence, even with the Spirit of God indwelling them. I'd say that we see their impeded communion. But then something happens. This is interesting. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered Him, No. One commentator said this, when, they, when Christ uses the term children, it's diminutive. And it's not unkind. It's not cruel. It's not mean. It's not mocking. But there is sort of a, a pitying, diminutive nature to what he is saying. And that commentator likened it to uh, something that we might say today, that if we were to, to speak to someone, we might use the term boys or girls. You ever said that before? Boys? <laughs> we were, uh, you know, every year at camp. I mean, camp is a ball and we have a lot of fun. All week you'll find, you'll hear adults saying, girls, boys, <laughs> girls, boys trying to get the attention of young people. And when Christ speaks out, He speaks in tenderness, but it is diminutive. And He acknowledges almost like children that are engaged in foolish activity. He acknowledges the folly of what they're doing. And He says, Children, have you any meat? They answered Him, No. I want you to notice the dictated requirement of the Lord. Now, in verse number 4, things are wrong. And we might even say in verse number 5, things are still wrong for them in a sense, but they take the first and most important step. Let me tell you something. Once you leave, how do you get back? I understand you don't lose your salvation. I understand you can come back in the church house. But what I'm saying is when you've walked away from living for God, how do you set that right? How do things get back how they need to be? Well, the Lord spoke to him and he said, Children, have you any meat? And the first thing he required was their recognition. Or we might use this word, their confession. You know what the Lord wanted out of them? He wanted them to acknowledge where their way had gotten them. Children, have you any meat? And it was just one word. I don't know if it sounded rude, but it certainly seems like it. Certainly it probably burned and turned to ash within their mouth to have to say that 
Because Peter is an experienced fisherman. James and John are experienced fishermen. Probably when they went out, they probably went out on a boat that was owned by John's family. Peter probably would have sold everything off. But John's family was a fishing family. And probably as they went out on that boat, they're familiar. They know how the nets work. They know where the fish are. They know how to do everything. I mean, there's no reason to believe. And I don't know about you, but most fishermen don't go out when it looks like a bad night. It was probably a good night when they went out. We don't hear of any storms or anything. There was no reason to think they shouldn't have caught something. But here they sit with empty nets and the Lord says, have you got any meat? And they had to say, no. No, we don't. After all that work, we don't have anything to show for it. After all that time, we don't have anything to show for it. After all that we've done, there's nothing profitable of this venture. We've got to acknowledge where our sin has brought us to. We've got to admit our emptiness. We've got to acknowledge that God was right and that we were wrong. That we should have never walked away. That's the first step. If you're not willing to do that, you can't get no help. The Bible says, if we confess, if we confess our sins, if we confess and forsake our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If, if, you say, what if I won't? Then you won't get it. He won't throw you away, but your life won't be right. Your fellowship won't be restored. Your purpose won't be given back to you. That's, that if is important. I think sometimes we are so anxious to affirm the doctrine of eternal security, and, and rightly so, we should be. I don't think we ought to diminish the, the doctrine of eternal security. But I think so oftentimes we're so keen to affirm the doctrine of, of eternal security and of the justification of the believer that if we had our way, we'd take an, a pair of scissors and cut that little two-letter word, if, out of our Bible because we don't like the implication of it. But the implication is this, that if you'll confess and forsake your sins, then He'll forgive you and He'll cleanse you. But if you won't, then He'll he won't. He won't. You say, what does that mean, preacher? Does that mean I'm going to lose my salvation? No. What it does mean, though, is your life will continue to be miserable. You've got to confess. You've got to acknowledge. I want you to notice Peter's recognition, but notice his repentance. And then he said unto them, verse 6, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. It's interesting because there are two truths that can be related here that are of interest. One is this. What do we mean by the word right? Do we mean right in the sense of correct, or do we mean right directionally? Well, I like the idea that the right means in the sense of correct. Well, if you get on the right side of the ship, then then things would get right. But I'm sorry, that's not what it means. That word means directionally. Right as opposed to left. But you know what it does teach me? It teaches me perfect, perfectly, the idea of repentance. You know, that's what repentance is. It's moving from the left side of the boat to the right side of the boat. It's saying there ain't no more fish in these waters. The fish are over there where God said they'd be. Say, there ain't nothing for me over here. It's all over there where God said it would be. It's a 180 degree. It's an about face that must take place. By the way, it's a change in the attitude that produces a change in our actions. I don't deny or dismiss that repentance does produce a change in the actions, but I think it is important that we acknowledge that it is not that change in actions alone, but it's a change in the inner man, in the heart, in the attitude that must take place. Listen, I know lots of folks 
that they may get right on the inside, but they stay wrong on, or uh, they may get right on the outside, but they stay wrong on the inside. But I ain't never met anybody that got right on the inside that, that didn't get right on the outside. It began with this confession, with this recognition, but then it must be repentance. You must acknowledge that your way is not the right way. But then when the Lord says this is the way to go, you've got to be willing to turn to do an about face to say, well, we need to get away from the left side of the boat. We need to get back to the right side of the boat. And then I want you to notice Peter's resignation. Look at what it says then. They cast therefore. I like that word therefore. It's a word of consequences. You know, this happened, and therefore this happened. The Lord said you need to cast on the right side of the boat. Therefore, based upon that word, based upon that change in their heart and mind brought about by the revelation from Jesus, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. You know what he had to do? Peter had to acknowledge his way was not right. Peter had to be willing in his heart of hearts to say, God, I'll go your way. And then you know what he had to do? He had to go God's way. He had to cast the nets. He had to let down the nets into the water. When he did that, everything changed. Now, I don't believe the greatest thing the Lord did for him tonight was give him, uh, or on that night, give him 153 fishes. But I think this was a process and that the Lord was trying to show Peter that, Peter, you may try to walk away from me, but I'm not going to walk away from you. And here's how you get right. And I want you to notice finally, not only do we see the dangerous results of leaving and the dictated requirement of the Lord, but notice the divine reception on the land. Jesus is still on the shore. By the way, this is a beautiful dispensational picture. I don't know if you've ever realized that the Lord is also teaching them something about what life's going to be like in this church age. Uh, They're toiling in the sea and the Lord is upon the land and He's encouraging them and guiding them and directing them and He's preparing a place for them for when they leave the sea and make it to the home shores. What a beautiful picture. Well, what does it mean in Peter's life? Well, I want you to notice four things that we see very quickly about this divine reception. It begins with Peter's actions. I want you to notice a fresh priority that takes place. It says in verse number 7, Therefore... That disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. The other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were, two hundred cubits dragging the net with fishes. Now, I'm going to tell you something that I have sort of moved my opinion and position on. I, I used to think, and I've talked with several folks, that when Peter jumped in the sea, that he was that he was despairing, he was casting away his life. But as I read this text, I'm puzzled and I am arrested by the phrase in verse 8 where it says, And the other disciples came in a little ship. As I read my Bible, and you'd be amazed how much it'd help you if you just read your Bible, you know. I think sometimes we read it without studying it, but I think sometimes we study it without reading it. And as you read that, it becomes clear to me that when Peter heard this and he girded his fisher coat and he cast himself into the sea, evidently it was with the intention of reaching the Lord because in juxtaposition it says that the other disciples, in other words, uh, this was the way Peter was trying to get to the shore, but the other disciples came in a little ship for they were not far from land, but as it were 200 cubits dragging the net with fishes. You know what I believe changed? You don't have to believe this. That's all right if you don't. But I see it in the text. I see that everything changed with Peter. 
I see that at first he was trying to get far away from God as he could, but when he just acknowledged God was right and repented of his sins, now he's trying to get as close to Christ as he possibly can. You know, that's what repentance will do. We don't preach a lot on repentance nowadays because it's not real popular. Uh, Eventually, listen carefully, you keep preaching on repentance, eventually folks are going to wise up and start wondering why we don't do much of it. And so a lot of preachers don't preach on repentance. You know, hard to preach on repentance when nobody's living right. And uh, so we don't deal with it much, but I, I, I think we ought to. I think we ought to make more and make much of repentance. I believe it is vital. And when Peter repented, everything changed. Now, that, was that because Peter's repentance was so good? No, it's because uh, the Lord's promise was so good. Repentance was a necessity. The Lord's promise was the provision and substance. And when the Lord said, cast on the right side, when the Lord said, I've got a place for you, I'm here, I'm present, once Peter just let go, and that's part of the problem, is we don't want to let go. Once he just let go and said, all right, Lord, you're right, I'm wrong. Once he did that, he wasn't running from God anymore. He was running to God. And he didn't care anything about the fishes then. I'm sure it must have been, uh, you know, seems sort of funny. Me, me and Brother Kerry, we have a unique relationship. And we, uh, the, we, we go out frog gigging. Some we ain't done it none this year. I don't even, did we do it last year? I don't even know if we did it last year. But uh, I, we go out frog gigging together, and I, he gets so mad at me. It's okay to say that, right? He gets so mad at me because we go frog gigging, and, I, and I, every time I talk him into cleaning the frogs. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure there must have been times that he thought, you know, you just want, wanted to go frog gigging. Here I am cleaning the frogs. Probably James and John thought, you know, it wasn't even our idea to come out here. And here we are dragging the fish back to the shore, and there Peter is swimming like a fool trying to get where he needs to be. You see, the fish didn't matter to him anymore. In fact, when he gets to land, he forgets them. I'd suggest he'd already forgotten, but when he gets to land, he absolutely forgets them because the Lord has to tell him to go back and to bring up some of those fishes. He had a fresh priority. Everything looked different. And what used to not be important was of vital importance now. And you know, that's what happens when we get right. Things change. The things that used to matter don't matter, and the things that didn't matter are all that matters now. We see a fresh priority. I want you to notice, though, when he gets to land, look at verse number 9. It says, As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid thereon and bread. (laughs) Boy, you talk about frustrating, some would think. But this fire probably meant a lot of things to Peter. It probably told him a lot of things. It's interesting that this phrase, a fire of coals, the only other time you'll find that is, is when Peter denied the Lord. It, show, it, it, it speaks distinctly of a fire that is built of coals. And uh, the, the only time you'll find this is when, when Peter had denied the Lord. I wonder what he thought when he got to the land. I wonder if he thought that maybe there'd be a reckoning, but that's not what God had brought him there for. You know, I know the Lord deals with us. I know He judges us. I know He chastises us. That doesn't make Him unloving. But, you know, I find this, that once we repent of our sin and confess it and forsake it, it's done away with. And we may get to God's presence expecting a reckoning and find when we get in the prayer closet that there's a reception there waiting on us. He gets there, and you know what he finds? He finds a full provision already laid out. Don't you know they felt silly? 
They'd spent all night trying to catch fish, hadn't caught anything, finally caught 153, get to shore, and Jesus already has fish cooking. You know what it teaches us? It teaches us that God doesn't need our efforts. He doesn't need us. We need Him. But He doesn't need us. He didn't call them to shore because He wanted fish. He called them to shore because He wanted fellowship. You know why God deals with us? Not because He needs us, but because He loves us. He don't call us to shore for our fish. He calls us to shore for our fellowship. But you know what happens when we come to Him? You know what He says? Look at the next phrase. Simon Peter went up. Or Jesus, verse 10. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. I'm sure that seems so funny. Oh, you got fish, did you? I already got fish cooking. You know, why don't you go ahead and bring some of your fish and I'll cook it for you. Only once Peter realized that the Lord didn't need his fish, would the Lord ask for his fish. There's a great truth there, friend. Once we realize that God doesn't need our labors, he'll make us a fellow laborer. Once we realize that God doesn't need us, you know what we'll find? We'll become fellow laborers with God in the work that He's called us to do. See, it's not that the Lord had a problem with Peter bringing fish. It's that the Lord had a problem with Peter thinking he was the only one that could catch fish. And once he realized that God didn't need him, that God didn't have to have him. And you know what the other side of that is, is to understand, because God was still asking for him. Christ was still reaching out to him. The Lord doesn't show us that he doesn't need us so that we feel unneeded. He shows us that he doesn't need us so that we do feel wanted. Because if he continues to deal with us, if it's not because he needs us, it must be because he wants us. Only after Peter... <laughs> Only after he realized that his fish didn't matter did the Lord say, all right, now bring some of your fish. We see a feeble partnership taking place. Not feeble on the Lord's behalf, for he already had fish and bread there, but feeble on Peter's behalf. And you know what happened? Uh, far apart, you'd think that Peter would have said, well, what's the point? You already have fish here, but that's not what Peter said. Peter said, you mean my fish can cook alongside your fish? And he said, oh, I'd be honored. And he runs back, big brutish man. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, and hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. See, the net doesn't break this time. The net doesn't break this. It breaks the first time, but it doesn't break this time. You know what the truth? You know why the net didn't break? Because Peter had already been broken. He had already been broken over his sin. And, and listen, it, one thing about it, once something's broken, you can't break it again unless it's first mended. That's part of the beauty in that broken condition. I, I was hearing a little anecdote. A motorcycle mechanic uh, made this statement, a lot of wisdom in this statement. He said, there is no problem so bad, but what a little fixing won't make it worse. <laughs> you ever heard that? There's no problem so bad, but what a little fixing won't Make it worse. And certainly that is true in our lives. We try to fix this thing and we try to fix this thing. If we just let go and realize that a lot of it ain't worth fixing, let God throw it away and let Him fix what needs to be fixed. And we'd find out we'd have a net that wouldn't break no matter how many fish were in it. I wonder what happened to that old net that broke. I don't know if they mended it. I don't know if this was the same net. I do not know. 
But I know that on this occasion, their feeble partnership was a success. Then finally, and I'm done, verse 12, Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. We see a familiar presence now in their life. Before, they didn't know who it was. But after they got ripe, they know exactly who it is. Before, they were doing their best to try to set the table and to try to catch the fish. But once they just let go, once they, once they were willing to leave the nets on the boat and just get themselves to the Lord, they found that all of their needs were met. Man, that's what we need tonight. That's what we need. We need to just let go. We need to quit trying to do it ourselves. We need to acknowledge what it is that God's looked at and said is broken and said is, is, it needs to be done away with in our lives. We need to say, Lord, that's right. You're right. I don't need that. Lord, you're right. I am on the wrong side of the boat. Let me get on the other side. Let me repent. Let me get this out of my life. And we need to quit trying to do it. We need to recognize that we couldn't do it even if we tried and even if we could do it. God doesn't need us to do it in the first place. And you know what we'll find if we'll do that? He'll bring us back into His presence back at His table, back to where we can be fed and nourished and helped. Because after all, it wasn't Him that left in the first place. It was you and I. It was you and I.